Set it down. I know what happens next. I saw you in my dream. You're in Carcosa now. With me. He sees you. a flat circle. Mr. Nietzsche, shut the fuck up. Put it down! Marty! Twin. There you go. Black star. Put your hands on your head. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. everyone and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever i'm zach and i'm matt and this is episode number 35 true detective season one part two and uh we got a lot to get to as promised <laughs> it will be a short up i don't know no it won't <laughs> so yeah we got a lot to get to so this one will probably be longer than part one so we should just jump right into it. So, part one, we kind of just threw a lot out there. <laughs> a lot to think about, a lot yeah. to consider. Um, this one, we're going to get into some of the um, recurring symbolism and mythology that pops up throughout uh, season one of True Detective, um, where some of that stuff comes from. We're going to kind of go through the middle of the story, kind of, you know, catch you up on that in case you have seen this show and forgotten <laughs> i guess or if you haven't seen it at all um and then we're going to talk conspiracies for a little bit we'll kind of get kind of veer off the tried and true formula of greatest moments into some uh i don't really know what you would call that true crime but not really yeah i, I would maybe true crime <laughs> Just <laughs> something. something, yeah. Something a little more allegedly real, true crime, or potentially real than what yeah. we usually talk about. So, you know, a lot of uh, exciting things happening here on the greatest moments. Okay, creator, writer, showrunner Nick Pizzolatto. He kind of did what, like a lot of great uh, writers or creators do, which is you know take a lot of things from a lot of places and kind of mix it all together. You know, pieces from both the obscure and the familiar, blend them together into something fresh and new, and you get something like True Detective. Um, So what do I mean by that? Well, there's a lot of uh, pagan symbolism and mythology throughout the show. 
this is something that you know probably most people watching it wouldn't be like super familiar with. A lot of things in the sitting show, right here. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Both of us really. There's a lot of references in the show to things from a niche 19th century literary genre called weird fiction. Pretty uh, clever name. (laughs) It was a genre that blended elements of science fiction and fantasy, uh, mostly dealing kind of with overall themes of humanity's descent towards madness. I'm familiar. (laughs) Some of the notable writers, Ambrose Bierce, H.P. Lovecraft, Shirley Jackson. Two works in particular kind of provide a lot of the terminology that is used throughout True Detective. Uh, One being Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow and Ambrose Bierce's An Inhabitant of Carcosa. Oh, uh, yeah. So right off the bat. Right. A <laughs> couple of direct references yeah, there. The titles themselves even uh, kind of get used a lot. And yeah. I think, like, I may be uh, mistaken, but I, I, the f- one of the first times that these kind of things kind of c- pop up is in uh, Dora Lang's diary. Right? Okay, you'll have to bring me up. I don't remember what they find in her diary. Uh, Well, a lot of references to the, the Yellow, Yellow King. King written out, Carcosa, Black... Uh. Black stars are drawn in there, which is something that's part of it. All right, so I don't want to get like too much to the end, but what all? How many times was she involved with these dudes? Well, it's kind of unclear. Her husband, we would later find out, was like cellmates with one of the associates of the Yellow King, right? Wasn't he cellmates yeah. with that Ledoux dude? Yeah, Reggie Ledoux, who we're gonna get to in this episode. Um, I'm just I, shared you know, a cell with her ex-husband. I don't want to get person. like too far ahead of things, but I just like I don't know what is revealed about her, like how many run-ins she had with. Well, this. it seems like they recruit people into some kind of a cult, right? Some kind of a belief system, preying upon like the weak and weak-minded. Um, but the actual nature of their day-to-day relationship before she's right. killed is kind of. It's unclear. But she's writing about him. Yeah. Okay. Kind of the same way. I mean, we'll see a few other characters who have like crossed paths with these people, how they kind of speak about it. Like right. the ma- the former maid that we meet oh, towards the end of yeah. it. So <clears throat> the Ambrose Beers story, uh, an inhabitant of Carcosa, concerns a man from the city of Carcosa who wakes up from a deep sleep and tries to figure out where he is. He wanders aimlessly until he comes upon his own grave and realizes that he is dead and that the wasteland he has been wandering through is all that's left of Carcosa. And this particular work influenced uh, Robert W. Chambers, who in 1895 wrote a collection of short stories called The King in Yellow. It's a book of stories, several of which revolve around a fictional play, uh, which goes by the name The King in Yellow, uh, which drives its viewers completely mad. Uh, the play within the book repeatedly name checks Carcosa. Um, it's steeped in the occult. You know, there's a supernatural being at the center of it. Uh, secret, powerful documents, sinister churchmen. So, I mean, if you've seen the show, I mean, you can kind of start seeing where some of this 
the connections here. Yeah, where how the story is kind of like reminiscent this and it's like, like a the, modern uh, version. This is like the uh, podcast in yellow, just driving its listeners mad. <laughs> and so throughout the show itself, um, I, I mean, okay, so just taking what I just said, okay, um, an inhabitant of Carcosa could potentially be Cole. It could be Marty and Cole wandering through this wasteland, pretty desolate area, as you pointed out. Yes. In part one. Um, and I'm going to get to some specific references to that in a minute. And then The King in Yellow, um, a play which dri- which drives its viewers completely mad, kind of speaks to uh, the influence that this ritualistic murder has, which we talked about in part one, about the psychosphere kind of thing, influencing uh, the people that you know hear about it, see it try to figure it out and kind of the negative effects on Hart and Cole and their families or, or you know Hart's family and even the idea of it affecting society in general yeah okay so we have the antlers which is obviously a crown Dorlang also had a spiral tattoo or symbol on her back uh, this is something referenced in the king in yellow Anyone possessing it is under the sway of the king in yellow. Ah. So it's kind of a... I think in the actual text, it's kind of unclear what the symbol is supposed to look like exactly, but later like interpretations were like kind of a spiral symbol. The stick lattice work that we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, kind of reminiscent of the Blair Witch... Um, this comes from something a little bit different. Uh, there is a short story called Sticks by Carl Wagner that uh, Pizzolatto specifically cited as an influence. Um, it, the story is basically about an underground cult attempting to bring about the rise of ancient beings. And they kind of like use these symbols that they make or whatever. And it's supposed to like wake up these ancient beings. Which, I mean, I guess is kind of, like, similar. If if you want to, like, throw the generic thing of, like, satanic cult over what we're talking about in True Detective, it's kind of, like, the same basic idea that they're answering to some oh, right. evil higher power kind of thing. The green-eared spaghetti monster, uh, which one of the people who was chased by the killer, uh, one of the kids, that's the description that they basically came up with, um, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, his he wrote of an ancient cosmic underwater creature or pagan figure known as the Green Man, um, which was something that was carved on churches throughout medieval Europe. So this could be a reference to either one, either H.P. Lovecraft's uh, Cthulhu. Or uh, Cthulhu, or Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Yeah. It's something that comes up a lot. Right. Uh, kind of a generic tentacle-faced monster in a lot of Lovecraft's work or other kind of similar writing and or there's there is a kind of a famous pagan figure known as the green man which is kind of similar to one of the uh important lines that kind of ties in with an inhabitant of Carcosa is uh Cole when he says that this place is like someone's memory of a town which is very reminiscent of some of the dialogue or some of the text in Inhabitant of Carcosa. Uh, the idea, you know, of waking up in this wasteland. 
And like I said, the diary of Dora Lang kind of filled with this kind of stuff. That's where we first see some Black Star drawings, Black Star tattoos. Uh, she also mentions uh, the Yellow King. And then Cole's hallucinations, which he has several times throughout the show and kind of get referenced a few times. Uh, these are similar to many of uh, Lovecraft's characters. They also kind of experience things like that. So you can see like Pizzolatto kind of taking a lot from these things. Yeah. Um, you know, not unlike maybe like a Quentin Tarantino or right. somebody like that kind of swirling together kind of influences, especially I'm ones that like a lot of people don't know. Yeah, more obscure. I'm trying to figure out like the Yellow King thing in the show. I so it's like they refer to him as like the the main villain killer or whatever as like the Yellow King, but I don't know why people know him as that, though. Well, it it's possible that uh, he refers to himself as such. Yeah, and that's he's definitely like the possible. leader of these people. Um, Which is strange. He doesn't really seem like he could inspire <laughs> a following. Well, I guess. I don't know. Well, it's also possible that deranged. A, a lot of the people maybe don't know who the Yellow King is. That's true. Specifically. Even if they've come just in contact a figure that with exists. Uh, the guy that... Well, it's just weird because like it seems like the main group is... Or it's like it's kind of like broken up into side factions. Like These guys that are doing more of the killing and stuff are seemingly only tangentially involved with the bigger parties that we kind of find out about later. You know, they're mentioned at being places... Well, I don't know. It's not like the Yellow King is like leading a whole bunch of people, right? It's kind of unclear. I mean, the Yellow King may not be in reference to a specific person. Okay. It may be the idea of some greater evil that some they're trying mythical to... Mythical figurehead? Yeah. I don't know, yeah. for sure. And right. that's like kind of, you know, what works best in something like this is when they don't try to explain it too much because then people can pick it apart easier and it starts to crumble under its own weight when you kind of leave it up to like interpretation a little bit and like leave it up to the viewer to try to figure some of it out it kind of works best but yeah i mean and we'll get into this more with the conspiracy part uh later um but you know when there's rich people involved it's not like if they want to like, you know, fuck kids or <laughs> or murder kids yeah. or whatever sick thing they're going to do, they're not going to do most of the dirty right, work. Right, right. Uh they need these they need these monsters. Scoundrels. They need to be in bed with just the dregs of society like as we, you know, some of these people that are involved are in order to get kind of to procure you know, the children for their sacrifices or for their sex or whatever it's right. going to be, um, you know, because they don't want to they don't want to have to take on all that additional risk of, you know, it's not like if you're some protected politician or high member of society, you're going to drive around in a van <laughs> yourself. Yeah. So logistically, who would be doing that? Right. And in those totally. scenarios, it's got to be like people like this. Um, just a couple other things. Um, so Shea Wigan plays a um, plays the revivalist minister Joel Terriot, T H E R I O T. 
um, which is one letter away from Master Tarion, T-H-E-R-I-O-N, an alias of Aleister Crowley associated with 666, the Mark of the Beast. And Tarion, um, when we see him and he's kind of in, you know, he's being questioned. This is like in what, episode two or three, something yeah, like that. Yeah, episode two, I think. Uh, when, he kind of, when they kind of reveal the nature of these questions and what's going on about the murder and whatnot, uh, he makes the sign of the cross, yet... He actually does it backwards oh. than what is traditional. And kind of like, that's, you know, it's kind of unclear what that means in this context. But a lot of times, like an inverted cross is kind of like a sign of satanic worship or Activity. something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of just a strange little thing thrown in there. Because uh, they do run into that character again later. And he's kind of like left the uh, ministry and... Like kind of just a sad drunk. alcoholic, yeah. and he kind of provides a little bit of information about some child pornography that he discovered at one of uh, oh, the yeah. Tuttle schools. So it's not, it, I don't really feel like Terriot himself is necessarily a bad guy. In no, this. in fact, he at that point, he is kind of painted as sort of the one of the people that uh, kind of tried to bring to light that something was awry, and basically... It seems like a little implied that his life has since turned to shit because of that. Yeah, and I think it's important not to get it twisted that just because there some a character or a character name or something they do is a reference to something doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they represent. Yeah, it's kind of like some of these things are just like nods and name yeah, checks yeah, and totally. whatnot. You know, the first time we see Le- Reggie Ledoux. Uh, he has that gas mask on, which once again is very like pretty re- scary looking dude. By right. the way, <laughs> very reminiscent again of some of Lovecraft's creatures and Cthulhu and all that crap. Was I? I don't know if that's the end of like episode four or whatever, but that was like such a weird, dark way to end the episode. It's just yeah, like, it's like this, a freeze frame. It's like a, before that, it's like kind of a sh- camera like panning over just this. What looks like a trailer that's had some modifications to it, some like redneck modifications. Now and that, then you see just that dude walk out with the gas mask on in like his underwear, and it's like a freeze now, frame. That's yeah, like the, the way that the that's shot, and the way he's walking, and the way he turns his head towards the camera is right. very reminiscent of that famous Ooh, uh, Bigfoot breaking the fourth wall kind of. Well, Does like, he look that, at the camera. Well, he's got a gas mask, on, uh, but like. Um, you know that Bigfoot oh, footage yeah, 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 where right. he, the way he's like walking and it stops and turns. And I was like wondering if there was some kind of connection like, and we'll get into this in a minute when we talk more about Ledoux, but like our heart and Cole like chasing Bigfoot in a way, like something that's like uncatchable. Yeah. That's not real basically in like you know real a real sense because you know Ledoux ends up not being the answer to all right. their problems basically um and then you know charlie lang dora's ex-husband mentions uh the stones in the woods and ceremonies which is kind of a recurring theme in a lot of weird fiction about stones in the woods and secret ceremonies sacrifices whatnot you know and then kind of just the recurring uh flat circle of time stuff oh yeah the wreath found at that crime scene when cole goes back that giant twisted wreath where dora lang's body was kind of you know reminiscent of a flat circle of time 
Um, just repeated masks and scars, which are very um, similar kind of to that Cthulhu and the Lovecraft kind of beings. You know, and there's some more stuff too. So basically, I just wanted to point some of that stuff out kind of to show where a lot of the stuff is coming from. Because yeah. I think most people, obviously, and myself included, like wouldn't know right. these references and what they're all tying into. You know, maybe why some of these things kind of are brought up over and over. Yeah, and it just adds another thing to explore and enjoy about the show. I also wanted to mention with Dora Lang's diary how that was kind of reminiscent in a weird way of uh, the diary of Laura Palmer from Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. That's what I immediately thought of when you <laughs> said. Di- yeah. yeah. Diaries and these kind of things are always big. I don't think a girl can be murdered on a TV show unless she has a diary. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> always a key clue. It's always a big plot point to right. go through that diary. Yeah. Okay. So where are we at here? The investigation kind of um starts coming together a little bit when they're when they kind of find out about this reggie ledoux uh character they find out about him through dora's husband who's in jail right no they find out about him because he used to date somebody that disappeared god that must have been like some relationship yeah because remember they seemed like the guy on the charmer The guy on the boat. Oh, yeah. Then I was it. like, oh, this guy lives in Waterworld, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was that guy was talking about his daughter that disappeared? I don't know. This, yeah. So these are some of these scenes are just, it's, it's so hard to piece together who they talk to because it's like such brief interactions that lead them to there any was given point. Some connection to the Ledoux family. He gets the name Reggie Ledoux. Turns out he shared a cell with Dora's ex husband. Uh, Charlie Lang. They find out Ledoux is kind of like off the grid at this point. Uh, He's kind of, uh, he was on parole, but he just skipped out on that. Uh, And they find out he's been cooking meth for a drug dealing motorcycle gang known as the Iron Crusaders. In a pretty insane (laughs) sequence of events that really moves the story along. Yeah, it just so happens that Cole is very familiar with this particular biker gang uh, from his time as an undercover narcotics officer. Quite a fortunate thing there. (laughs) Yeah, so during this, uh, Marty's relationship with Lisa blows up. Lisa reveals the affair to Maggie. Maggie moves out. Lisa a little reactive to... (laughs) This kind of like forces a weird scenario where... Marty moves in temporarily with uh, Cole. It's kind of like a brief moment of the show, but it's kind of funny. Like they kind of have like the odd couple type right. relationship yeah. in uh, Cole's uh, uh, weird apartment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It does make you think about like love, though. You know, the the love that existed between Hart and uh, what was her name? Alexander Dario's character, Lisa. Lisa. It's just like how quick it can just end and how quick they're resorting to calling each other like limp dick pussy faggot or whatever. And he threatens to, or not threatens, basically promises that he's going to skull fuck her. <laughs> it's like, wow, how things can unravel. So then Cole unofficially goes undercover to infiltrate the Iron Crusaders. Now, yeah, it all leads to that. What probably was like one of the most talked about scenes the long tracking shot 
action sequence, which was pretty unbelievable to watch. But as you brought up, and I I agree, the circumstances that lead to it are so insane. Yeah, this whole little turn in the in the story kind of always felt sketch to me. Like I don't know, the it just seemed like too good of a coincidence that Cole would have some familiarity with this particular biker gang even though his undercover time was in a different state and like they gotta like do they go to texas at one point i don't know are they in texas when this whole thing happens i don't think so because i think they go down the bayou they take that boat yeah it's really odd um Um, yeah well it's uh, just another strange it's like he can just call this dude up who he hasn't talked to in years and i mean the guy is like suspicious of him but he like gets to go to this like almost what looks like WCW hog wild type party. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, the important thing I think to take from this is this is the first time that something notable dealing with the case has come up in the interviews with Pampina and Gilbro, Papania and Gilbro. Um, I can never forget it. Uh, where the story that Cole and Hart are giving them is not matching up with what really happened. Now, obviously Hart glossed over some of the extra, uh, uh, you know, extramarital situations oh, and that right. kind of personal stuff, but they've kind of given uh, Papania and Gilbro the real story when it comes to the case itself. And now they're continuing with a lie that they told Right, uh, seventeen years earlier, about Cole taking time off uh, to be with his father, who he, he says is sick or has cancer or something, and in reality, he's doing a going to try to work unauthorized this angle. Yeah. undercover angle with this biker gang, um, and they stick to that version as they're talking to the interviewers now. You know, there's the extended shot, which you referenced, at the attempted drug house robbery. It's kind of a crazy sequence. Yeah. But basically, everything goes to shit, so Uh, they kind of improvise what they're going to do. Right. They kind of just take Cole's uh, connection to the gang hostage, and they're going to meet with with, uh, Ledoux, although they don't actually meet with Ledoux. What happens during that sequence is all pretty fucking insane, because it's like, basically... Cole is trying to find an angle to meet Ledoux because they know that he deals meth to this uh, biker gang. And the guy's like, all right, uh, I'll get you a a sit down or whatever. But first, I need you to do this thing with me, which we're basically going to go rob like ghetto drug dealers or something. But from here, he's just like, all right, let's do it, man. And they jump on a boat and go down a river to a trailer somewhere and then pile into a car and had to do this robbery. Somehow he's able to relay to Hart where he is. It seems impossible. Yeah, I mean they, the whole the whole thing is just kind of like ugh. he gives him an address or something, or, or not even he says Get, meet me on the corner of some street name. Well, he, no, he doesn't even say corner. He's like between meet me on this street between nineteenth and twentieth, or right. something. Right, like and how does Cole even know what town he's in at this point? Yeah, it I seems like they've traveled quite a ways. Yeah, the whole like it makes for like kind of an exciting sequence. Oh, it's awesome, and it's like nuts. <laughs> but like, it, its connection to anything that you really care about is tenuous at best. And, and people are just getting like shot up, and Cole manages to drag this bald bearded dude like 
Yeah, all around, over yeah. fences. And it's... then, yeah, and then uh, Hart just, like, pulls up. Hey, I found the streets. No problem, man. Hop in. Yeah. <laughs> so they basically take that guy hostage. They force him meat. It doesn't go well. So, no. again, <laughs> Hart and Cole have to improvise. They end up following the meth dealer back to the meth ho- cookhouse. I don't think the guy they met is Ledoux. No, but it was the guy that's more connected to the motorcycle club, I think. Yeah. So they follow him back there. It's kind of a secluded thing out in the middle of just nothingness in the bayou, I guess. Yeah, that guy, Um, like, covers his Jeep or whatever in that weird kind of meshy camo stuff to, like... Yeah. So they decide to raid it themselves. Well, they're like, yeah, let's uh, go through the woods and see what's up there. They make the kind of false agreement... That they're just gonna go walk, like find the place, and then go back to the car and call it in, right? Which obviously, once they get up there, they do not do. Yeah, they end up finding two children. They end up killing the two suspects. Well, this is like uh, one of the more shocking moments, or just Cole has like cuffed Ledoux once they have him, and he is like a creepy freak, but he's down on the ground. And when Hart finds the kids in sort of this cell, he just walks out and immediately shoots Ledoux in the head, even though he's like cuffed and everything. And I guess that kind of uh, relates back to what you were saying in part one about Hart being like just so reactive and emotional. But it's it's like Cole, while he's so edgy and stuff, he still like kind of believes in this like uh, cop code or whatever. But it's like you're kind of like wondering how he's going to react to that. But he, he's just like oh, I don't care that you shot him in the head. That was good to see you commit to something. <laughs> yeah, and Ledoux, while he's handcuffed, he mentions the that the black stars will rise, uh, that Cole will be going to Carcosa now. He also mentions twin sons, which is another bit of imagery lifted from Robert Chambers' The King in Yellow. It all speaks to, like this road to madness. Is that what Carcosa is? to these people this insanity is that kind of you know where cole goes after this two or 1995 you know i was gonna call it a shootout but it's not really (laughs) that's what they call it in (laughs) retrospect but it's not i mean is that what happens you know not clear but maybe that's really what carcosa is to these people they i guess it's like pretty insane because the other guy not Ledoux, who Hart just blasts in the head. He tries to like make a little run for it, but I mean, he gets shot. But he blows up because this whole like land is just like rigged with yeah. booby traps. And then they falsify the scene. They're kind of like lauded as heroes. They get promotions. Uh, Maggie and uh, Ma- Marty reconcile. Cole gets a girlfriend. Yeah, named Laurie. And there's a kind of a lot kind of a refocus or like a a pivot point here in the series because it's referenced kind of during the next few following years as kind of like the happy years even for Cole because yeah they uh Marty kind of in a voiceover references that one of the setups uh with Maggie's friends finally sticks she's a doctor I can't imagine how this relationship went I mean Lori was her name it's like she's like uh, do you want to watch The Bachelor tonight? It's just like, oh, Lori, why would I want to watch some maggot scum? <laughs> <laughs> I 
mean? We're all just waiting to die. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they have basically like a nice little seven-year run up until 2002. Um, and Cole has actually like kind of come into his own during this time because even by his like fellow law officers who he formerly couldn't really connect with, he's kind of established himself as this great interrogator and people call him in a lot just to ha- help have him help on their cases and stuff, which like kind of is the catalyst for the story to move again. So in 2002, a PCP addict up for... Uh kind of uh, suspected of a double murder. Cole gets a confession out of him, but then he wants to make a deal, which is weird because he's already confessed. Uh, and he offers info about the Dora Lang killing. He says that they didn't catch the, they didn't catch the killer, says that he's met him, says he's known by people, or he says big people know about him. And he says, I'll tell you about the Yellow King. This kind of sets Cole off because the whole stuff about the Yellow King was not in the public information. Yeah, no one really knew about it from the investigation side. So, subsequently, the PCP addict guy commits suicide, but before that... Under mysterious circumstances. He calls a payphone in the middle of nowhere under the guise of calling his lawyer. So, this whole circumstance is very strange, and it kind of sets Cole off to thinking that they didn't catch the real killer. And it's at this point in the narrative that Gilbro and Papania reveal their interest in Cole, which is they start, they're a little suspicious of him in general because he's been popping up around some new, newer murders. Right. He's kind of been seen at, he was at a funeral of a prominent figure. Yeah. And they know that, uh, the Reverend, uh, Billy Lee Tuttle's, houses have been broken into they're kind of wondering what's going on it's it it kind of is turning a little bit of the suspicion onto cole right and this is revealed to marty who reacts pretty defensively of his former partner in fact even maggie when they alluded to her she you know pretty vehemently is like i haven't known him for years but i knew rust cole to be a good man And Marty kind of says the same thing. Like, whatever happened between us, whatever you think you got on him, I don't believe it. Yeah. um, Back in 2002, uh, Cole picks up the case again and starts investigating uh, the Tuttle schools, which uh, are part of an initiative to provide Christian education as an alternative to public schools. Basically, there are these little schools that sort of popping up along uh, the coastline um, kind of in poorer areas. And Tuttle uh, is the high-profile minister. Also, his brother is the governor of the state. Right. And their names, you know, have been popping up over and over again. Just by doing some basic work, um, Cole kind of uncovers some accusations of child mol- molestation and child pornography, which we touched on when uh, Joel Terriot comes back into the picture briefly. Uh, Cole goes and speaks to Kelly, which was the little girl that survived, uh, that they rescued from the meth house uh, back when they had this showdown with Ledoux. Right. Who is, you know, not really leading the most <laughs> positive life at She's this point. fucked up. Yeah. Uh, but she references a uh, the big man with the scars that made her watch what he did to the other ones. Ugh. And it kind of becomes clear that the two men they murdered weren't the, well, 
murdered makes it sound worse, I guess. <laughs> but the two men they eliminated back at the meth house may not have been the only people. Right. And Cole starts picking up all of these uh, things where he starts believing that there's killings unreported or previously unconnected. And he starts seeing these patterns. And it becomes quite possible that Reggie Ledoux was set up as a patsy to take the fall. Because it's referenced, you know, in their little flashbacks and their interviews that everyone was pretty happy at the time right. to accept that Ledoux was responsible. Yes. Which is basically kind of how a patsy would work, which would be somebody that was, t- you know, connected in some way, shape, or form who ends up taking the fall for everybody. Although when you say take the fall, I mean, in whose mind? Because, like, obviously. He well, didn't come forth and is like, oh, yeah, arrest me. I, like, it's only by chance that they happen to even find him. Well, that's the that's like the idea that uh, the people at the top, the people that, you know, spoiler alert, Cole and Hart can never get. Right. Because it's impossible. There's so many layers of protection. Yeah. It's built in from the start that somebody would be a patsy. Right. Okay. Yeah. Saying it out loud. Yes. And, you know, unbeknownst to that person. It's yeah. like. There's so many layers to get through just to get to Ledoux, then there's a million more layers just to get to somebody who may be at the top who's a high-profile person or a high rich person. Right, and I mean, even this person who, in the scheme of things, is kind of on the same level as Ledoux, they don't even have any idea who he is at this point. No. So, you know, talk of conspiracy and involvement of the Tuttles... Uh, kind of gets Cole shut down by his superiors. Yeah, he, well, he goes and confronts the Reverend, not, you know, calling him out directly, but there are allusions. He basically says he wants to investigate the records and stuff from whatever they have on file. Right. And Tuttle's, you know, receptive to that, but it's definitely like an uncomfortable moment and then he gets back to the station and it's basically just like all right you're suspended i told you not to go up there and and you know cole would later reveal that he is definitely 100 percent positive he was suspended like that order came down right um and i kind of uh you know when we were kind of going through these episodes and um putting this stuff together we actually happened to watch the 1990 miniseries it based on the Stephen King novel, um, something that I've seen a million times and also read the book. And I started to kind of see some similarities, because uh, this was something you brought up a couple of times while we watched <laughs> it, which was about how the town in It kind of is in denial. Right. And kind of turns the other way up, uh, towards a lot of these evil things that are going on. And it's kind of like... That same kind of idea is what shuts Cole down in in 2002 and tries to stop him. It's like people that like aren't necessarily even connected, like his um su- you know police chief or whoever that guy is at that point. You know, probably not involved, right? At all, no. But yeah. like, is trying to shut him down, and it's kind of like this denial that kicks in. And I mean, this obviously that's something that happens in a lot of right. things, the horror things, or whatever well this idea discussed again later by another police officer who does seem more of a bad man than his supervisor but he is it is kind of just like look i just did what i was told like well yeah like i'm not it's but it's kind of like this idea of like i'm not going to think about the possibility of what's happening i'm just gonna 
go with the flow and you know yeah and like stay the, the public course. conscience the public uh idea of like denial you know kind of in it there's a cthulhu kind of monster at the center of everything uh in true detective there's not like a supernatural monster but a lot of obviously a lot of the illusions I don't know. The fact that he hasn't died of diabetes is kind of supernatural. (laughs) (laughs) So in 2002, Marty uh, cheats on Maggie again, this time with another super hot. After years of being good. Yeah. With uh, Lily Simmons, who plays the older version of the underage prostitute that he gave money to in 95. Right. So the down payment. It all comes full circle. Yeah. (laughs) Was real. Yep. Uh, in retaliation, once Maggie finds out, she's which doesn't take Cole. long. It doesn't take long for this to all come crashing down. Yeah, it. Well, it's kind of unclear how long this That's was going true, on, but I guess. Maggie seduces Cole when he's really drunk. Just a cold-hearted bitch move. I mean, I love how like you still want to defend. I mean, I think at that point she's allowed. I know, but she could fuck anybody. Why does it have to be Marty's partner? Because he probably wouldn't care that much if it was anybody else. She has to do something that hurts him. I know, but it's like just using Cole as a pawn and all this. I mean, what's he going to do? She just shows up at his house wearing this salacious little skirt. Okay. I mean, he cheated on her twice. I don't understand why she's not allowed to do that. No, she's definitely allowed to do it, but why can't she do it with any other dude? Besides his friend. Well, I think they clearly were trying to set up that Cole wanted to fuck Maggie since like pretty early on in the run yeah. of the first season. So Which I don't think he, he was later say no. Not deny, right. So this causes so Maggie, of course, immediately tells uh Marty about it. Um it's like, Hey, I got something to tell you. <laughs> very reminiscent of our episode on Closer. Sit down. <laughs> this causes uh, a fight. Oh, which, by between... the way, yeah, when she tells him, she's like, uh, I haven't been fucked like that since before the girls were born. It's like, do you think that's true? I mean, it was a pretty quick <laughs> situation. Or is that just like she is just trying to dig yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, she's just salt turning the screw. Yeah. And they, you know, Hart and Cole fight after... Or and then afterwards, Cole quits the force anyway. This kind of leads these three to go on separate paths, basically for the next decade. Yeah, Cole quits. Maggie and Marty end up getting divorced, and their paths don't really seem to cross all that much until 2012. In these interviews, obviously, Marty would have some connection with you know with the his daughters. daughters and stuff, and I'm sure he's interacted with Maggie. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, like they've kind of just gone their separate ways. Right. From this 2002 fallout and it's you know i mean i think it would be naive to not think that the case had something to do with it um you know because that's what the show's about right <laughs> i mean in reality yeah. maybe the case really wouldn't have anything to do with this but you know well i mean it's looming large over everything yeah but it also directly affects this because uh the girl that marty fucks that starts this whole thing back up again is a girl that he met because of the case yeah, and their reconnection seemed like just a coincidence. Um, right. He, she was working at like a T-Mobile store, and he was buying cell phones, presumably for his daughters or something. And although he like falls off the wagon immediately after that interaction, it seems if 
kind of seems implied that he hasn't been hadn't been drinking for a while because he kind of like yeah. looks at the bar, kind of like sighs and like gives in. Yeah, yeah. I don't and know. That's if, where she goes in and and meets him and starts talking to him again after the yeah cell phone interaction. Well, it didn't seem like he knew who she was. Right, he first. didn't recognize her. And why would he? I guess. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that comes up with uh, True Detective is this idea of conspiracies, government conspiracies, cover-ups, you know, for secret cults, secret societies, kind of maybe uh, satanic in nature. Basically, like, the bad things that rich and powerful people can get into and then the lengths to which they will go to keep those things secret just seemingly related to the level of depravity that can come along with just being rich and doing whatever you want for however many years yeah and the idea of having to up the ante right um in order to get it going get their kicks um and so you know we saw we saw some connections um with what is implied heavily in True Detective and some, you know, some other stories pulled out of real life. Yeah. Yeah, why don't you tell us about that? Okay. So, in 1970, a dude named Larry King took over the uh, Franklin Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska. The uh, CNN talk show host, Larry King? Yes, that's right. The beloved (laughs) suspenders-wearing talk show host. No, actually, a different Larry King altogether. Uh, Actually, African-American ties to the Republican Party. Uh, He ran the credit union for several years, during which time early an investigation would reveal that $400,000 was missing. So kind of got some eyes on it early on. Uh, He was connected to a place called Boys Town, which should raise (laughs) eyebrows for anybody. Now, you've had some connections with Boys Town. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I would agree to some horseplay and <laughs> no that's a sandusky reference but <laughs> but it was like an organization where they brought in like at-risk children and I, I believe it still exists but uh throughout the 80s though there were all sorts of like reports stories rumors surrounding like these lavish parties that uh, larry king threw and attended and they were attended by like several prominent figures from the uh omaha area including like members of the media businessmen, politicians. Uh, Allegations were made about Larry King sexually abusing children and some of these other people, like a couple of times, like prior to 1988. But no formal investigations were ever launched against him until 1988. But before that, uh, Larry King actually appeared at the Republican GOP convention and sang the national anthem. There's some footage of that. It's all pretty horrifying. <laughs> it's more horrifying than, than the child than rape. The, yeah, than the allegations. Basically. <laughs> uh, but eventually, enough of this stuff started to accumulate, and some people started to, you know, really kind of be like, all right, what is going on here? And uh, it led to a, some probes around the, the Franklin Credit Union, and a committee was formed to sort of investigate this. At this point, a reported $40 million... Uh, was unaccounted for from the credit union, which really raised some eyebrows. <laughs> I mean... You would think. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what's going on there? There's some rinky-dink uh, credit union in so Larry Nebraska. King, at this point, Larry King would go on to be charged by a federal grand jury with 40 felony counts, and his wife uh, was also indicted on 12 charges. 
so just some seemingly shady things going around the uh, King family. But uh, a man named Gary Caridori was hired to be the uh, lead investigator for the Franklin Committee as they planned to follow the money in a Lester Freeman from the wire type way. Uh, <laughs> Caridori conducted extensive interviews on four alleged victims of child abuse by King and his associates. Uh, Troy Bonner... Paul Benassi, Alicia Owen, and Danny King. They would go into detail graphically describing the crimes that were committed against them and the abuse they suffered. Uh, you can he- I've heard some of this footage. Uh, golden showers were referenced as being <laughs> part of it's, this. Uh, it's pretty horrific stuff. Yeah, it's hard to listen to, really. If you're not familiar with it, just think the worst things ever. Yeah, basically. Up to and including Seemingly, brutal murder yeah. and horrific corpse uh, desecration yeah. everything you could imagine yeah there was definitely like especially from paul benassi who seemingly was like involved with these parties in fact he made allegations before these uh interviews he was one of the people that made these allegations earlier on they talk about going to this place called bohemian grove where politicians meet and they had p- parties there it's all pretty fucked up but uh, <laughs> the supposedly the interviews were sent to the fbi uh, which were subsequently leaked to the media. And basically there was like an immediate spin put on to just discredit these four people. Paul Benassi, I mean, he obviously has been through some fucked up stuff, but like he had like multiple personality disorder. So there was like kind of a lot of stuff. I mean, I, everyone came from like pretty dark past. It, it was pretty hard to, I guess, get them across as credible witnesses. But uh, Caridori uh, went on to speak with a man named Rusty Nelson. Now, <laughs> cue like 80s porn joke or something. <laughs> I mean, but he was a photographer and he uh, advised that he had incriminating photos of uh, from these parties and of these people. Uh, Carrie Dory flew his plane to Chicago to take his son to the MLB All-Star game. And he briefly met with Nelson to obtain the photos. Uh, Carrie Dory would phone his boss and report that he finally had what they needed. But, unfortunately, his plane broke up in the air on the return trip, and uh, they never made it home. And a lot of the investigation fell apart after this. Uh, Strangely, a lot of the people being investigated did go to jail for various charges, and uh, the grand jury would even admit, in some cases, that child abuse and some degree of this may have occurred, but just not to these uh, four specific accusers. And, I mean, to be clear, these four witnesses told stories that were so crazy that a normal person not prone to believing in conspiracy theories, uh, they would have a hard time accepting this. Uh, The accusations went as high as well-known political figures at the highest levels, which is kind of where it connects to True Detective, just this idea of the sprawl. Now, Alicia Owen was found guilty of perjury and sentenced to 9 to 25 years, which seems over the top. Uh, the craziest part seems to be the amount of mysterious deaths of people just connected to the case, which the list is quite lengthy. There was a documentary, Conspiracy of Silence, filmed for the Discovery Channel, and an hour before it was supposed to air, it was purchased by some unknown buyer and polled. That uh, documentary was, quote-unquote, leaked on YouTube, so it is available. And, I, I mean, we're not getting into all this stuff because it's, like, crazy. Just, like, how many different things this involves, but, like... If you want to, like, check into more of it, you should definitely watch that. And there was this other dude, John DeCamp, who kind of represented 
uh, he, some of these people like Paul Benassi and Alicia Owen, and he's like kind of fought for them for a long time. He wrote a book called the, uh, the Franklin cover up. So what does this have to do with true detective? Well, in true detective, uh, as the investigation goes, it kind of becomes clear, at least to Cole, that this is something that is beyond just a couple of uh, meth cookers living out in the woods. Right. This is something that connects to some of the highest ranking public officials in Louisiana, uh, high ranking in the church. You know, and it kind of speaks to what I mentioned in part one about religion as distraction. Um, you know, able to hide behind the church, um, you know, which also ties into some of that stuff from weird fiction. Um, I think like some of um, the themes in uh, Robert Chambers, The King in Yellow had, you know, kind of evil uh, church people um, involved. (laughs) I mean, it's just something, you know, kind of through these kind of things. Um, So, you know, is everyone in true detective like when you have this conspiracy that reaches like all of these people like that it's implied you know that people may be in the police force right politicians high-ranking people in this church are all of them like pedophiles like what is like the percentage of pedophiles in the general population how does this how do all these people find each other is it, and yeah. you could say the same thing about this alleged franklin credit thing also right but the idea i think to remember is that not everyone involved necessarily has like a taste for children it's kind of like this fucked up world that you become a part of and it's part of like ensuring your silence is like you've become a witness right you're a part of it even if you're not into it well, and it's um, like we've seen examples of this like breaking in the mainstream over like the past 15 years or so with, you know, the Catholic Church stuff and then the uh, Sandusky Penn State stuff where it just seemed like years of sort of people sort of turning their cheek to stuff or. Yeah, I think the, the Catholic Church thing is probably a better comparison because I think the Sandusky right. thing, you know, was really just one guy yeah, but doing I, it. I don't know. When they investigated that, it seemed like people knew about it but yeah that's it's i mean they knew hearsay. about it but they didn't right participate yeah yeah that's this, true. Cause right. i'm, I'm yeah. addressing the idea More of, of like group, trying to yeah. wrap your mind around finding all like you know let's keep it in true detective right, like cult let's wise, think yeah. like all of these people like how do they all find each other how many are there in general like theoretically if a person is like this kind of fucked up pedophile. It's like, how do you reach out and find these other people to form this? Yeah, group I don't know. Are they just like uh, hanging out at a party one night and then like, <laughs> shit got weird? <laughs> yeah, it, you know that's just one of those. Uh, and thank God it remains a mystery to me. Yeah, no kidding. Where it, it's like, I don't know how these things start. Like, how do you start a satanic cult where oh, you're I know. murdering? children well, in it the is woods. weird and i mean the franklin stuff gets like so crazy and like so many elements are involved but like i don't know I, i'm really not like a crazy conspiracy theorist at all but like the more i get into a lot of that stuff it does seem like some weird shit happened there like i don't believe like a lot of it but yeah uh, it definitely seems like some I, shady stuff was going down well a lot of people were arrested so i mean yeah i mean i don't want to like 
speculate too much because oh. I mean I have no idea yeah, what totally. really happened right. with that. But like, yeah, I mean it's hard to think that nothing at all happened. And right, this right. all came out of thin air. Yeah, it just there's too much. Just a lot of weird coincidence there. So yeah, I mean, did you have like um, some recommendations or no? Oh well, I was just saying that conspiracy of silence documentary, uh, John DeCamp's book, and also this talks about a case that loosely ties into it. But the documentary uh, "Who Took Johnny" on Netflix also gets into this stuff. Yeah, and um, for further listening, you can check out the episodes of Sword and Scale. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. about it. And Very well put together. And on the left. Yes. Um, they get into, like, much more detail of the... <laughs> yeah, and uh, franklincase.org yes. to find out everything uh, that we're kind of talking about. Yeah, I kind of um, took a lot of the timeline details from there. And so, back to True Detective, um, this kind of brings us up to the 2012 reunion of... Uh, Russ and Cole, um, they both kind of more or less storm out of their interviews once it yeah. becomes clear that, th- that these people are suspecting Cole of being involved. Uh, Cole kind of flags down uh, Marty on the road, um, <laughs> invites him to get a beer, and that's the end basically, of the episode. you know, the gang's got to get back together because yeah. they they got some unfinished business well, from that case yeah. in 95. It's clear that Marty's going to take some convincing, though. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll, we will uh, wrap the story up in part three. We'll kind of offer some theories that were floating out there. Uh, we'll talk about kind of the conclusion, our feelings on that. Did it kind of live up to everything? Um what did it all mean? You know, that kind of stuff. Right. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, True Detective Season 2 and, you know, kind of any potential future on that as well. So, as always, you know, thanks for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Tune in for the big part three. You can subscribe on iTunes. Um We'll try to get part three out less than a week from the day this was posted. And don't worry, we're almost through this bleak stuff, and then we'll have the uplifting October. <laughs> Just a lot of fun horror. Yeah. Horror movies are fun and because they're, not, they're so clearly not real, whereas something like this could be real, and yeah. it's horrifying. We don't want anything to do with that anymore. <laughs> yeah, so uh, tell your friends to listen. <laughs> get 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 like a buzz going for Absolutely, these True Detective yeah. episodes. We're really, you know, <laughs> setting the world on fire right yeah. now. We can really set the dialogue for the uh, true crime internet community. Alright, so thanks for listening, and we'll uh, see you for part three.